Welcome to the Kings Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Nick A.R. Johnson, editor-in-chief of No Ceilings NBA, staff writer for No Ceilings NBA, and I'm here with my co-host, founder and curator of the Basketball Intelligence newsletter, available at basketballintelligence.net, Ray LeBove. Hello there, Ray. Hi, Nick. Uh, I'd like to take just a moment to let everyone know that post-operatively, <laughs> I am making progress and getting closer and closer to full strength, and you know, while I'm still somewhat um, impaired, maybe that's too strong a word, um, in, in terms of my ability to fully participate. I'm going to do the best I can today and very thankful to you uh, to be assuming the bulk of today's commentary. And um, my anticipation and goal is that by next week, I'm going to be much, much closer to be um, fully myself in, the, in, in this venue. And I'm very thankful to you for soldiering on and, you know, showing up, joining me here today. It's a lot more fun to talk to you than it is to talk to myself like I did for, you know, the episode a couple of weeks ago. So fingers crossed, of course, that the recovery goes smoothly and continues to go smoothly over the next week or so. But for now, I'm glad to have you here in whatever capacity. It's always fun to talk about basketball with you. Thank you. Yes, I agree. It's fun, likewise, to speak with you. So this was a very interesting week for the Kings. I think I would certainly say that the highs were much higher than the lows were low, but you know, it was a two and one week that included two games that ended up being pretty close Kings wins. And let's start with the big story of the week for multiple reasons in Sacramento Kings land, which is the game against the Warriors on Tuesday night. And this was a game where heading in, the Kings essentially knew what needed to happen for in-season tournament purposes, where heading into the game, given the result of the Minnesota game, essentially if the Warriors won by 12 or more, then they would move on in the in-season tournament. And if they didn't, then the Kings would take that slot. And at halftime, it looked to be an uphill battle for the Kings. I mean, they were down 19 points at the half. The Warriors had controlled the game basically from tip. And, you know, it was very clear heading into halftime that the Kings were, you know, not only facing an uphill battle just in the game period, but were facing an uphill battle to remain in the in-season tournament rankings. And instead, they mounted an incredibly impressive comeback that, you know, even still went, you know, was down to the wire in the final few moments. But ultimately, a Malik Monk runner was the difference and the Kings won 124-123. So, you know, it's a huge win for the Kings anytime they can beat the Warriors, of course. But this was a particularly important game for multiple reasons, you know, not just the in-season tournament setup, but also that the Kings had lost their first two games against the Warriors this season. And, you know, one of them we talked about was about as much of a moral victory as a loss can be, you know, keeping it to within one point on the road without De'Aaron Fox. The circumstances were certainly a lot better for the Kings this time around. And yet, you know, early on, it looked like this could be one of those games where, you know, the Kings just struggled coming out of the gate and didn't ever fix things. And, you know, instead they made that massive second half comeback. And, you know, as we'll talk about later on in the podcast, now they're in play for the first in-season tournament ever, which, you know, it's it's interesting to sort of evaluate how much that in-season tournament quote unquote matters. But based on the comeback that the Kings mounted in this one, based on comments from players around the league about, you know, the competitive viability of still trying to score points late in the fourth quarter there are clearly some teams and some players that care about this. And certainly based on the way the Kings played in the second half of this one, they were a team that cared about this. They were a team that wanted to 
give themselves a shot in the in-season tournament. And, you know, this was a game that they very easily could have just laid down and given up as many NBA teams facing the Golden State Warriors have done over the past few years. And instead, it was really a triumph in basically every way it could have been for the Kings. Maybe equally interesting is what it says about the Dubs, especially mm-hmm. uh, the 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 next huge lead um, that they gave up uh, only to lose to the Clippers. Well, I think it was a 22-point um, lead that led to a uh, buzzer-beater defeat. Um, and I'm as equally interested in what are the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, the Warriors came at a halftime with a 19-point lead, and as recently as Two years ago, that would have been, well, two years ago was maybe not the right specific year, but within the last decade, like that was pretty much a death sentence. Like the Warriors, you know, their thing has been for a while now that, uh, you know, the first half is whatever. We'll come out in the third quarter and we will destroy you and that will be the end. And this was a game that was perfectly set up for them to do that. I mean, up 19 at half, like against a team that they'd already beaten twice this year. You know, it was a situation where it could have been very easy for this game to just sort of be a Warriors lie down. And instead, they just didn't. I mean, you know, they kept the lead for most of the night, right? Like the Kings only took the lead in the final moments, essentially. But this was a game where if you were going into a Warriors game at half down 19 five years ago, then that's when you like, you know, especially for the Kings, as we'll get into with a game the next night. Like that's when coach empties the bench and, you know, everybody says, okay, we'll get some rest, try and get them tomorrow. Right. And instead, you know, granted, this was a bit different than really any game that the Kings have had in the past in the regular season of how much it mattered to actually keep the score close. But even, even with that in mind, it would still have been very easy to just be like, okay, you know, we gave it a good run, gave it a good effort, you know, we'll get them tomorrow. And yeah, on, on the flip side for the Warriors, I mean, Blowing that lead to the Clippers after blowing this lead to the Kings is it's an interesting sort of dilemma of, you know, this season has been a very slow start for Andrew Wiggins, even though ironically enough, probably his best game of the season was this game against the Kings. But really, for me, I think what it signals is the Warriors are at a point of changing of the guard basically for everybody outside of Steph, right? Like Steph is still Steph, but Clay Thompson is clearly not the player he was three years ago. He's been better recently, but you know he's not all-star, all-NBA, certainly not on the defensive end. He's not what he once was. And, you know, Draymond is Draymond for better and often for worse. And certainly I think in this game, you know, given that he had four turnovers and got a tech and, you know, only had three assists in addition to that, eh, maybe not his best effort. And certainly uh, the Kings went on a bit of a mini run after his outburst, which is not to be unexpected from him. But for me, I mean, Moses Moody had 11 points in 13 minutes in this game, hit every shot and down the stretch, you know, he was, he was really cooking in the fourth quarter. And yet Steve Kerr subbed him out in favor of Clay Thompson. And it's the kind of thing where it seems like the Warriors are not quite ready to move into the Moody Kaminga sort of era of the team. And, you know, with Moody in particular, there's a very clear blocker in front of him in Clay Thompson that, you know, in this game, like that was kind of the difference was that, you know, he got hot and he didn't get to stay hot because Kerr subbed him out for Clay Thompson. You know, a couple of things. One is that Coach Kerr has been very self-critical about that move, um, about not leaving Moody in um, one way or another, whether it involved 
bringing clay back or not. Um, and also, I guess it speaks to um, last year there was this perception that they were doing a two timeline thing, you know, because of wise minutes and others. And, you know, they at least uh, ostensibly moved on from that. Nonetheless, there are they, there is an element of transition, you know, that has to happen. You know, one way to look at it is, okay, we're going to give one last shot with, um, you know, the strength of what we had. But um, even if you're not looking at two timelines, which is like almost impossible to orchestrate, um, what does that mean transitionally? Uh, and obviously Moody and Kaminga are huge parts of that. Um, interesting to see how that plays out. One other point from the King side of things that I think is worth focusing on. This was not a great night scoring wise from Demonis Savonis, and he's had a few of those lately. And, you know, this is something that you and I have talked about before, but, you know, I think is worth bringing up in the context of this particular game, you know, nine points on two of seven shooting, you know, not, not exactly the kind of performance that you want from your all-star all NBA guy. Right. But he had 10 assists. He had eight rebounds. You know, he kept the offense flowing even when he was struggling with his own scoring. And, you know, it sort of brings to mind the notion that even during bad Sabonis games, the floor is pretty high, which is, you know, very encouraging for Kings fans. The flip side of that, though, is that this is a team that we saw struggle mightily when De'Aaron Fox went down. This is a team that, especially when one or both of De'Aaron Fox or Malik Monk is struggling, it's hard to generate offense. And, you know, with Sabonis having these, you know, nine-point nights, I think, honestly, the seven shots is maybe even more troubling to me than the nine points in the idea that, you know, he just sort of settles and says, okay, this is not going to be a scoring night for me. Like, yeah, you know, dishing out 10 assists, keeping the offense running, it's huge. But the flip side is that there have been and will continue to be nights when the Kings need more of a scoring punch from him. And taking seven shots is, you know, again, I think that's almost more concerning than the nine points because, you know, everybody has nights where the shots don't go down, right? But if you're not even putting them up in the first place, you know, that's where defenses can sort of shift their game plan around. Okay, he doesn't seem to be willing to shoot, right? We can, you know, just key off him as a scorer in the second half and, you know, let him make the passes he's going to make. But if he isn't providing a scoring punch, you know, again, especially when either or both of Fox or Malik Monk struggle, they really need another offensive engine. Well, I think that's really well put that, um, so-called bad Sabonis um, brings so many positive things still, whether it's rebounding or whether it's orchestrating the offense or passing or the VHOs, um, uh, other things that he does well. But um, against the very, very good teams, it's probably not enough. And uh, so, yeah, and I think one of the other things to, to maybe take a look at is when he got pumped in the um, Dubs playoff series last year by Looney, um, one of the things that was very clear was the lack of that mid-range shot was really detrimental. And if I'm correct, early this year, we've seen significant improvement there. And so if it goes back to either the absence or the um, not well-functioning mid-range shot, are we, you know, does that mean we're back to um, the level of play that we saw in the playoffs then? Anyway, I, my intent is not to be critical of his play because I think his play is uh, central to the success of the 
kings in ways that when we see uh, players around the league who have bad games, many, many times, and even maybe most times, it means they're not of much value at all. Um, when I think it, it, it is true that he brings so many things positively, even when he's not playing well, that that's really not true. But again, as you say, um, it, it, it might mean that it's not enough. I mean, I think the mid-range point that you brought up is huge. I mean, you know, he's taking one and a half threes a game, right? Which is, you know, right around career averages. I mean, he's been higher at points in his career. His all-star year. Isn't he hitting a good percentage of those? Well, I mean, he's hitting 41% of them, but, yeah. you know, the flip side is the sample size is 24 all season, right? It's not. No, no, no. I realize it's very low volume, but at least he's, at least he's making them. Right. For sure. But I mean, I think the, the volume question comes more into play with the mid-range shot of do teams need to contest him at 15 to 18 feet, right? And the amount of difference that that makes is dramatic because if they need to play up on him even a little bit in that range, right, then he can counter it pretty easily. And with Sabonis, I mean, you know, he can back someone down. He can, you know, rather than running a high pick and roll, run like a mid pick and roll in the mid post. And if defenses feel like they have to guard him from that range, that makes almost more difference than him knocking down that shot because it just changes the geometry of the floor of, okay, you know, we need to station someone on him when he has the ball in his hands. You know, we can't just, you know, because a lot of teams will and continue to, you know, play off him from three point range because he's a lot more dangerous beyond the arc as a DHO guy than he is as a shooter himself. But you know, it's the kind of thing where you, you know, you, you build it from the mid range, you sort of push it out. I mean, we saw that with De'Aaron Fox's development over the past few years, right. Of, you know, him year one in the league, you know, not much of a jump shooter at all. Year two starts getting more comfortable from the mid range, you know, over the last couple of seasons, he started to push it out beyond the three point line more frequently, but just the difference in the spacing of the floor that the defense has to deal with if they presume that Sabonis is a potential threat from the mid-range, you know, that just creates a lot more openings than, you know, him taking up three and a half per game and knocking them down. It gives him, when you guard a, pl a player closely in that context, it gives them a lot more choices. And, yeah. and that's even more true when you have somebody with the, I the basketball IQ of, Sabonis, uh, you give him more choices. He's going to use those more choices in multiple different ways um, that uh, are basically, as you say, taken away from him if, you set, if, if you're able to sag that far off. Let's move on to the next game now. And, you know, Kings went two and one, and this was the one, right? And, you know, on the one hand, it's very easy to sort of make excuses for why this was a rough game from the Kings perspective. But, you know, the flip side of that is that, you know, you can't just, you know, sort of the flip side of what we were saying with the Warriors game, right? Like they really went out and charged hard for that game in the final half. And, you know, in, in this game against the Clippers, it was, you know, pretty flat, pretty early on. And they tried to, it was actually really interesting. They sort of tried to, push the issue in the fourth quarter and they were only able to get the lead within, you know, 14 or so because it was too little too late. But, you know, the energy was clearly there for the fourth quarter push in a way that, you know, was a bit sort of disappointing in hindsight that they didn't come out stronger. But ultimately, I mean, Darren Fox was, yeah, I mean, Sasha Vizankov had a great game too. I don't want to discount that, but essentially Darren Fox showed up and 
nobody else really did. I mean, Sabonis, 11 points on 12 shots, and he, Malik Monk, and Vizenkov were the only guys besides Fox in double digits, right? That's just not... It's not a winning formula when De'Aaron scores 40 and you know, the entire rest of the team combined barely shows up to play. It's a tough a tough way to go. And no matter how spectacular De'Aaron is, and he's been spectacular entire season, don't get me wrong, but man, I mean, this is... It's interesting in the sense that usually the games where the Kings struggle like this, you know, one of Fox or Monk is not on, you know, is not driving the offense, is not, you know, pushing towards the basket. I mean, you know, Malik got to the line seven times in this game. De'Aaron got to the line 10 times in this game. Like, really the issue, I mean, the biggest issue was just that they allowed James Harden to absolutely walk all over them in the first half. And, you know, in the second half, the game was kind of already decided. And, you know, if they'd started mounting their comeback effort a little earlier rather than like late in the fourth quarter, maybe this ends up being a game. But, you know, it was sort of the reverse of the Warriors game where that game seemed like it was over at halftime. This game seemed like it was over at halftime and it was over at halftime. So it almost sounded to me like you were describing that game that the Mavs played last night where um, they were they were out of it and came back 30 to nil to almost uh, be competitive. And they were virtually totally dependent on one player. Wonder who that one player might have been. <laughs> uh, for those scoring at home, no, I did not wonder at all about who that player might have been. Right, right, exactly. But you know, something else to, I think, touch on before we move on here is just again with with Sabonis I mean this was this was a bit different than the Warriors game in that he you know this was honestly the sort of floor game for him of he didn't contribute that much outside of his scoring I mean only three assists I think that's if that's not his season low it's close um like five rebounds if that's not his season low that's also close and it's not like he was benched for the entire game. I mean, he played 31 minutes and, you know, this is a Clippers team in particular too, that like, you know, Zubats is a load in the paint. You know, I don't want to dismiss that at all, but this is not a team with some spectacular defensive big man that you can say, okay, I understand why Sabonis was taken out of the game. Right. And it's the kind of thing where if it were just him, you know, scoring 11 points on 12 shots, Again, like the Warriors game, 10 assists, 8 rebounds. This game was remarkably bereft for him. And, you know, the back-to-back thing is certainly part of it. But, I mean, De'Aaron showed up to play, right? It's not like like this was a complete, you know, schedule loss. You know, write it down and sort of move forward, right? Like this was was a game that if the Kings had gotten more from pretty much anybody besides Fox, Monk, and Vizenkov, they would add a chance. And instead... You know, again, James Harden walked all over him in the first half, and that was basically it. Makes you wonder about what we were just saying <laughs> previously about Tomas. I'm going to treat this as the exception that proves the rule. I mean, certainly it seems, you know, given the entire rest of his tenure with the Kings, that it might be. But again, I mean, we'll get into it in a minute with the next game. But, you know, him being slightly more aggressive than that Warriors game, sure. But, like, it was... It was an iffy effort in a game where, and you know, I we talked about this with the two game set against the Rockets, where we were hoping that, that would be a good matchup for Sabonis, right? Sometimes, sometimes you think it's going to work out for him, and you know, he has everybody has off nights sometimes, right? But this was a matchup that he very well could have taken advantage of and just didn't. True. 
So the final game that the Kings played this past week, they won on Saturday night, 123-117 over the Denver Nuggets. And this game was interesting just in the sense that you know, the final score line doesn't really tell the tale of the game in multiple different regards, which I think the biggest one for me is the Kings won the second quarter 39 to 20. Other than that, this was a very lackluster performance for them. I mean, this was a game that, again, if they hadn't had that wild romp in the second quarter, this could have very easily been a pretty depressing beatdown loss. And yet, you know, they had one quarter that was good enough to sort of sustain them for the rest of the game. But Nikola Jokic just mauled them in the first quarter, 16 points in the first quarter by himself. And, you know, he finished with a very Nikola Jokic line, 36 points, 14 rebounds, 13 assists. But really, the tale of this game was told in that second quarter. And ultimately, JaVale McGee came into the game at the same time as DeAndre Jordan for the Nuggets, right? The Nuggets subbed out Nikola Jokic. The Kings subbed out Demonis Sabonis. And JaVale McGee so thoroughly dominated that little run from two minutes left in the first quarter to seven minutes left in the second quarter when Jokic checked back in that it went from Nuggets up seven, 26 to 19, to when Jokic checked back in, they were down eight, 42 to 34. And that was it. Like that little run in the second quarter was really the only stretch of the game where I thought the Kings played better than the Nuggets as a team, that was all it took, which, you know, great notch one in the win column. But the flip side of that is, man, that's a, that's a dicey way to go about things of just, you know, we're gonna, you know, you take advantage of the minutes when Nikola Jokic isn't playing. Of course, every team does because, you know, anybody is going to be worse than Nikola Jokic as the backup off the bench. But ultimately, I mean, this was a game that, you know, the Kings had a double-digit lead in the fourth quarter. They nearly blew it multiple times. They were outscored in every quarter except the second. And, you know, it's it's a kind of thing where on paper it looks like a good win against a better team standings-wise in the rest in the Western Conference. But, you know, you look at the specifics, and I mean, Jamal Murray missed this game, right? That's, you know, the big headline. And you know, thankfully, Malik Monk had a spectacular game, 26 points on 14 shots. And JaVale McGee, who has had some really rough stretches this year, had an exceptional run and, you know, three blocks, uh, eight points on four for four shooting, four rebounds, exactly what you want out of JaVale McGee. And, you know, you don't want to be in a place where you can genuinely say, if not for JaVale McGee, the Kings lose this game, right? That's not... And I'm someone who's been very high on McGee and specifically for the Kings team this year. And, you know, he showed what he can do when he's at his best in this game. But this is not the kind of game that you can take, in my mind anyway, you can take much positive away from the Kings because they had a great little run in the second quarter. And outside of that, I feel like they were thoroughly outplayed. They were given a great opportunity to play a team missing its second best player who happens to be one of the best players around playing its, what, its fifth game in seven nights? Yes, um, and, that too. And uh, I think that, you know, certainly has to affect um, how long you leave the Joker out. Um, he, you know, there's, there again, we talk about limits of how much even a great player can play. Um, they have to rest him sometime. And, you know, 
if you were anybody who was watching the game noticed uh, that turnaround when he went, it started almost immediately when he went out and lasted until he came back in a 15 point swing in seven minutes. And yeah, that was very instrumental in the outcome of the game. Um, so yeah, there's not a lot of necessary, and you're not going to rely on JaVale playing at that level um, very often. I mean, he can be instrumental and he can be helpful and he can be a, a nice addition, but when was the last time you saw him play at that level? Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess I'm essentially agreeing with everything that you said. We have talked before about why we don't like using plus minus stats in individual games or even in longer stretches, but I do just want to mention it here because it is pretty funny and pretty stark to just hear the numbers read out. Nikola Jokic, 38 minutes played, plus 11. DeAndre Jordan, 10 minutes played, minus 17. JaVale McGee, 12 minutes played, plus 14, right? (laughs) You know, it's incredibly reductive to bring up plus minus stats in any context. And we've said that before and we will say it again, but like sometimes it's illustrative. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you, you, you see what you see on the screen and then you look at the plus minus stat and it's like, yeah, that, that tracks, that tracks with what I saw of Deandre comes in, Nikola Jokic goes out, JaVale McGee comes in, Demonis Sabonis comes out and wow, all of a sudden the tenure of the game completely changed. That's right. So now let's move forward into the preview portion and (laughs) This is going to be the most impossible preview portion that we have dealt with so far this year and that we will deal with again this year because the entire rest of the week is up in the air and it is entirely dependent on what happens with the in-season tournament. And so, you know, as mentioned, the Kings would have been out of this in-season tournament had they not had that remarkable second half comeback against the Warriors. Now they are the number two seed in the Western Conference in the East in-season tournament, and they will be playing the Pelicans tomorrow night, tonight when all of you listen to this on Monday. But that really will determine the entirety of the week. So, you know, from there, if the Kings win that game against the Pelicans, they move on to the semifinal, which they will play on Thursday against the winner of the other quarterfinal matchup in the West, which is the Suns-Lakers game. And if they lose to the Pelicans on Monday night, then they will play the loser of the Suns-Lakers game on Friday. And then the real question comes into play of if the Kings win both of those games, if they win on Monday and win on Thursday, they will be the Western Conference representative for the first in-season tournament. And maybe it's just me being a little weird with my Kings fandom, but I would really love that. I mean, just how energized the fan base was with the Summer League championships, it would be yet another level to see the Kings win the first in-season tournament, you know, a little bit in common with, you know, last year of De'Aaron Fox winning the first Clutch Player of the Year award. It was, you know, the kind of thing where, okay, this is interesting that they're doing this, I guess, but my personal investment in it rocketed up dramatically when De'Aaron Fox was a clear contender for that award. And similarly to that, similarly to a summer league title, it's something where, man, I mean, you know, this is a team that has been in, before last year anyway, in the wilderness for a long, long time. And to be able to say, yeah, we won the first in-season tournament, you know, it's like, okay, that game doesn't count for the standings, right? So it's like, you know, it could be very easily dismissed and certainly, you know, a lot of consternation heading into the in-season tournament about how much people would care, how much it would matter. 
I would argue that the Kings made a pretty clear display in that Warriors game of how much it mattered to them as a team. And, you know, there's only so much you can take away from that. You know, they maybe just wanted to come back winning against the Warriors because, hey, it's fun to beat the Warriors, especially if you're the Kings, right? But I think it would be really fun for them to win. And, you know, if they're competing in that championship game, they're not going to have a game on Friday. They're not going to have a game on Sunday, right? It's not like this championship game forces them into a back-to-back or anything. I think it would just be really cool. And, you know, the kind of thing that doesn't change much about the trajectory of the rest of the season, but is something that at the end of the season, you know, regardless of how the playoffs go, it would be really cool to have that in-season tournament championship and say, yeah, we won the first one of these that ever happened. Well, I think that any fan base is going to be enthused by anything that's that's strongly positive. But when you factor in 17 years of starvation, it certainly escalates things. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing where just, you know, remembering what the environment was in that first playoff game in forever last year, just one of those things that I've said before, and I will say again, I have never been in a louder space in my entire life (laughs) being like, Oh my God. God, this place is insane. And, you know, Kings fans are not unfamiliar with that sentiment, right? I mean, there's a reason that Arco broke decibel records for indoor arenas basically every time there was a playoff game there. But it's the kind of thing where it's cool for any fan base, but I would be willing to bet a significant amount of money that, say, Warriors fans would have been a lot less invested had they topped the Kings in that game than... I'd like to think Kings fans will be invested, but that's all speculation. Ultimately, what that will come down to is this next game against the Pelicans. And that's where things start to get interesting because I think that the worst game of the season for the Kings so far, I don't think it's even particularly close, was their first game against the Pelicans where they got absolutely destroyed. Like they had a solid first quarter and from there was just lifeless. Zion got to the rim basically at will in the second quarter. And once he started doing that, it was all over from there. And, you know, the second game was slightly better. I mean, De'Aaron Fox had his worst game of the season in the first game, slightly better in the second game. But a lot of the reasons for the struggles in the first game are still relevant. I mean, Dyson Daniels has done, I think, the best job of any defender on De'Aaron Fox so far this season in that first game. And he did you know, great job on him in the second game too. And the flip side of it is, you know, those first two games, the Pelicans did not have CJ McCollum for either of those games. And I think it's a situation where with Zion and Brandon Ingram, the Kings already match up really poorly with the Pelican stars. And if CJ McCollum can provide anything really, which I expect him to, you know, now he's back on the court and healthy, you know, We've talked about this before, how this is a Pelicans team that hasn't really been healthy at all, you know, and when they've been healthy, they have a ton of great players. But, you know, I think the tough thing here is that this was a bad matchup for the Kings, even when they weren't fully healthy. And so now that they are approaching closer to full health, I think this is, you know, again, a matchup where on the one hand, sure, you know, the Kings have had two of these weird two game away sets and they've been their four worst games of the season, right? Like the Pelicans, two losses, the two losses to the Houston Rockets earlier. But I think this is a bad matchup for the Kings, even in, you know, worse circumstances, like it was the first time they faced the Pelicans. And 
Now for this matchup, I mean, it's going to be a struggle. And I would honestly, from the Kings perspective, have rather played the Suns or the Lakers, despite both of those teams being ahead of the Pelicans in the standings. I think the Pelicans just have particular weaponry that the Kings struggle to contain, especially if the health of Keegan Murray is up in the air, because he was really the only guy who slowed Brandon Ingram down at all in the first set of matchups. And even then it was still an uphill climb. You know, I think there's, we talk about perspective sometimes and, you know, I hope people have the perspective now understanding that the decimated Pels, which is the typical Pels for a a long, long time, is not the same team as the healthy Pels. Um, The healthy Pels are quite a good team all around. Defensively, they're really terrific. Um, You mentioned Dyson Daniels and, of course, Herb Jones. I mean, Daniels is basically ideal size and, you know, athleticism to deal with pretty much anybody. I mean, at 6'8", with his wingspan and his lateral mobility, it's he's going to be an all-defensive team guy sooner rather than later. And certainly that first game against Fox neutralized him in a way that Darren Fox has not been neutralized in quite a while. Before we wrap up, I think we should touch quickly on what the rest of the week looks like outside of that Pelicans game. And that will be, again, you know, the game on Saturday, it's entirely dependent on the Eastern Conference side of the bracket. So it's almost impossible to even speculate about that. But at least for the next game for the Kings, we know the two teams that will be their potential opponents. So, you know, we're just talking about KD, right? The Suns are one of the potential matchups, right? You know, again, no matter the outcome of tomorrow's games tomorrow's and tuesday's games the kings will be playing one of the suns or the lakers it's just a question of is that a tournament consolation game or a tournament semifinal game and with the lakers i mean the kings have already played the lakers twice this year they've already beaten the lakers twice this year the lakers health situation is slightly better than it was the last time the kings played them which is you know a huge part of this but i think you know the matchup the Kings have not had yet this year is against this new look Phoenix Sun squad. And Bradley Beal is going to be reevaluated, I believe, sometime between when we're recording this and when the Suns play their next game. But that's a reevaluation. I think it's safe to say that the odds of Beal actually playing in that game are slim to none. But Devin Booker is back. And, you know, that's, I think, really the key there is that even without Bradley Beal, I mean, Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and change is a tough team for anybody to deal with. And, you know, on the Kings side of things, I mean, Durant, I think, is an easier matchup for the Kings to swing than Zion just because of the differences in their game. Like, Zion can bully the Kings in a way that Kevin Durant can't. You know, not to say that Kevin Durant is not still one of the best players in the NBA, but... I think that it's more of a concern that the Kings have guys that they can throw on Kevin Durant in a way that they really don't when it comes to Zion. But man, I mean, you know, this, this Suns team has, they've had an interesting start to the season so far, but you know, other than having dropped to their last three games, they essentially just came off a seven game win streak. Like Bradley, uh, Bradley Beal's still out, but Devin Booker is back in the fold. I mean, and I would add into that, mm-hmm. playing at a very high level right now is Nurk. Yeah, and you know that's that's huge for multiple reasons, but you know mainly just in the sense that you know between between Nurkic and Kevin Durant as your four or five, it's 
I mean, it's a nightmare switch-wise, and it's a nightmare with, you know, Nurkic punishing guys. Nurkic is going to be, you know, I think, I don't think it's, you know, unfair to say that Nurkic is going to be easier for Sabonis to deal with than Zion Williamson. But, you know, the flip side of that is that a lot of the Kings' best games this, this season have been when they've been able to get downhill and get into the paint. And a lot of their worst games, especially when De'Aaron Fox was out, were the games where they just couldn't put any pressure on the rim. And so Nurkic being there, Nurkic, you know, playing every game for the Suns this year when health has been a concern for him throughout his career, it'll be interesting. I mean, this is a matchup that I think is certainly easier for the Kings than the Pelicans matchup would be, but also I think more difficult than the Lakers matchup would be just purely because we've seen the Kings play the Lakers twice this year and they've beaten them both times, right? It's like, there's a model for the Kings to win a Lakers game in a way that, you know, they could, and it's, you know, it's not like they can't beat the Suns, right? You know, they're around the same place in the Western conference. Anybody can beat anybody, et cetera, et cetera. But purely in terms of the matchups, I think the Suns are middle of the road in the sense that the Lakers matchup is a lot easier to see King success. And the flip side is I would much rather face the Suns in the quarterfinals than the Pelicans. Always more interesting when the matchups and or potential matchups are against elite teams. Yes. But also, I mean, I think the flip side is the Suns are one of the slowest teams in basketball this year with, you know, a lot of sort of Kevin Durant or Devin Booker or Bradley Beal when he was healthy, just sort of walking the ball up kind of offense. It's like their offensive talent is so spectacular that, you know, they still are 11th in points per game despite being 27th in pace. But that's going to be the kind of thing where if the Kings can push the pace against them, that's a game that's, you know... there for the taking from them and sort of similar to the Lakers style, right? You know, they're not quite as slow as Phoenix, but it's a very similar thing of, you know, we talked about this last week, right? Of styles make fights and the Pelican style is more of a clash with the Kings in my mind than either the Suns or the Lakers. Seems like we've talked about a lot that a lot this year. And I, we used as part of the shorthand of will imposition. <laughs> yes. Like, um, which team's pace gets imposed by that team's will is likely to be the winner. All right. I think that covers it. Very good. Thank you. Thank you for carrying me. <laughs> I appreciate the support. Um, so thank you all so much for listening and checking us out. If you've been enjoying the show, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated for a show like ours, but especially appreciated since we're a relatively new show. Uh, if you want have any feedback on the show, feel free to get in touch with us uh, either via Twitter at Kings Weekly Pod or via email Kings Weekly Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.